0: Hi, this is Ron Hogan, and you're listening to Life Stories, a Beatrice podcast, where I talk with memoir writers about their lives and about the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Stephen Ranella. He is the author of Meat Eater, Adventures from the Life of an American Hunter. Hey, Steve, how's it going? Great, great. I appreciate you having me on your show. Fantastic, thanks. So, you've written another memoirish, well, reportage sort of book, American Buffalo, yeah, about a specific um, hunt that you went on, but Meat Eater really sort of like you dig a lot deeper than you have in anything you've written before in terms of what you're sharing about yourself and your life with readers.
1: Yeah, that's true. And it's funny just when you were doing your introduction, you mentioned like talking to memoirs and like, I never ever think of that word. It's like everything I do turns out to be personal or or have memoir elements. But I sit down and think like, I'm going to write a book about Buffalo we're run the write a book about, like, the history of human hunting. And in the end, it just turned, you know what I mean? Like, I, I creep in. Like, I, I don't have a lot of self-restraint. So I was like, find my way into things. And honestly, starting this book, I, will, I wanted to write kind of like a, I don't know, like, like, a, like a treatise on the meaning and history of hunting. And then once I got into it, I realized that the best way to do this would be just to, you know, talk about myself. It just comes out, man. I don't really understand why that is. Um, if I was writing a book about... Some presidential election from the 1920s, it would probably wind up having a huge, you know, it would be like a lot about me in some weird, maybe perverted way, you know. Um, (laughs) But yeah, this book is deeply, it has a lot of explanation of where I come from on hunting, how I came to hunting, what hunting means to me now. I just feel like that's the best way to explain what hunting means to the general population. You know, we've got 30 million hunters running around this country, so.
0: And that sounds like a lot when you say it is 30 million, but when you consider the size of the population and the the trend in how many hunters we have had. You know, at one point you mentioned that there are now fewer hunters in the United States than golfers.
1: Yeah. Which is just which which just depresses me no end. Like I can't like when I think of how far we've traveled to be that that more people are interested in sort of the manicured cleanliness of golf over, like, the fecundity of the wilderness and hunting, I, like, it troubles me about where we're headed. But yeah, I think that hunting has a high profile now in the media, more than it's had in the last, you know, 20 or 30 years. But for for every, like, atypical hunter we gain, and we're gaining some, like, oftentimes now there's a trend where, you know, urbanites are discovering hunting, or people, or foodies are discovering hunting. For every one of those that we gain, we're, we're kind of losing 10 people who would have traditionally hunted. So, like, Ten farm kids in Nebraska who would, in the past, have always hunted, don't hunt now. But then one guy from San Francisco begins hunting. But the guy from San Francisco may be a little more loud about it. So it seems that there's this growth. But we now have, in New Jersey and California, you have fewer than 1% hunters. Then you have some really intensely hunting-type states like Texas, Pennsylvania, Michigan, where I'm from, Montana. Hunting still alive well. And that people will buy a license and go hunting once or twice.
0: And you mentioned growing up in Michigan, and there's a lot of that in Meat Eater. You know, you started hunting at a very early age.
1: I don't even remember beginning to hunt. And now, it's funny because beginning to work on this book was the years in which my wife became pregnant with our first child and and then him growing into being, you know, a two-year-old boy. And as I looked at, like, his capabilities and his development and sort of where he's at in a technical understanding of equipment and how he handles himself and just his ability to stand in places where there's present danger around, like, ledges or things that might hurt him or knives. All this has led me to be, like, almost to think that there was some level of negligence on my father's part at, at the young age in which we began hunting and fishing. When I think now that, like, that my kid, when he's 10, would have, like, a Rimfire twenty-two rifle, I just can't picture that, that would ever be like a sane, safe decision. Yet, that's what I had. I mean, I was fishing, catching fish when I was three, which I can picture with my own son because he already understands fishing. But like the gun thing and the knife thing, I just, I had access to things that I think that a lot of kids now just don't. And I grew up fast in the outdoors in that way that I developed skill sets that, that, that a lot of people aren't going to develop. And picking them up very young, I found maybe a much better hunter later on. When I meet people who will begin hunting, like maybe they're in their 20s or 30s and they want to begin hunting, in some like secret way, like I don't articulate this to them, but I always think you will never, probably never really excel at it. It's just something you have to be born into in a way. I think to really have it enter your mind and have it be something that you do naturally and that you can act quickly enough to make it work, you know, in a variety of environments and a variety of circumstances. So yeah, I talk a lot about just all, all this formation of things. That occurred in Michigan, and one of the main themes I have through through the book is like a development of ethics. And your skills as a hunter develop faster than your ethics. So I began hunting and and, and doing things that I saw done around me, and then only later in life, like in my late teens, early twenties, that I realized that some of the practices that I grew up around, that I grew up thinking were perfectly acceptable practices, were in fact not sustainable were unethical practices and weren't in the better interest of long-term hunting and fishing. So in the book, in some ways, chronicles just like an ethical development of an American hunter.
0: There's a specific turning point that you write about in that ethical development. In your teens, you kind of developed a, a career as a trapper. Yeah. And you write about how there was a point at which, as the fur market was sort of dwindling and it was... The economic return on what you were catching, in terms of the the outlay, the investment that you put into to catching it, was dwindling. There was a moment where you turned to to snare hunting, which was uh, or snare trapping, which yeah. was actually illegal in Michigan at that time. Yeah, tell us uh, what some of the other
1: issues about it are. Archaic as trapping seems, it's really very regulated and very spelled out what you're allowed to do as far as seasons, bag limits, technical specifications on equipment, like you might be able to use a trap that has a jaw spread of five inches but not a trap that has a jaw spread of five and three-quarter inches. You know, it's very spelled out. But one of the things that at this time in Michigan, which is absolutely a no-no, was the use of cable snares. The, the primary argument against cable snares is they, they're not very discriminatory, meaning that you can set a snare for fox or coyote and inadvertently hook deer by the foot or catch someone's pet. Also, they remain operable. If they're abandoned, like if you never go pick it up, it's likely to remain operable for a long time. And so, for all these reasons, you weren't supposed to use it. As it became harder and harder to turn a profit trapping, when when I say turn a profit, mean that you you go out and, and spend X number of hours trapping and you earn X number of dollars from doing it. When when that got down to being that you're earning one or two dollars an hour when you figured all out, I started like casting about for ways to make it profitable. It's it's no different than the way other industries get driven into the black market. Like, during Prohibition, like, you ban alcohol and people are going to keep drinking. So I think in some ways I began to see that regulations on trapping were almost like an affront to me personally because, like, the government, in this case the state of Michigan, was trying to, like, make it impossible for me to pursue my dream of being a professional trapper by having over-restrictive regulations, and I, and I kind of rebelled against it. And in rebelling against it, what I did was I, in my sort of rebelling against specific laws I kind of rebelled against the whole idea of restraint in behaving in a responsible fashion I just like went whole hog into this kind of antipathy toward government and rules and I tried to wrestle a lifestyle out of, out of trapping that, that i that I couldn't do and through a story I tell in the book it drove me to kind of catch and and, and kill an animal a river otter specifically that and, and doing so has haunted me you know all of my life that I sacrificed some part of my innocence or some part of my love for the outdoors by going after animals that I really shouldn't have gone after. Unsustainable populations of animals using practices that were unsustainable and that the general population had deemed unacceptable. Yeah, and, and that was a real turning point. In, in, in I, and I use it as such in the book to bring me toward having a broader, more holistic approach to hunting and having a, a, a law and, and using hunting. As a tool for the long-term benefit of fish and game. And in that way, people sometimes think that, that it's like a contradiction. Like, how could hunting and fishing be good for fish and game? You have to remember that hunters have like self-imposed excise taxes. We pay 10-12% excise taxes on sporting goods equipment, guns, ammo, other things. So every year, we're kicking in $250 million. That by federal law has to go toward fish and wildlife. I mean, hunters lead the charge on conservation now. Which is our way of making up for past sins. I mean, we wreaked a lot of havoc and destruction, but the modern day hunter does the opposite, I believe. You know, I mean, the, the, the predator husbands his prey is kind of the, the typical modern hunter's perspective on conservation and, and usage.
0: As part of that ethical development and maturation, you know, one thing that comes through very clearly in, in meat eater, as it did in, um, you know, some of the shows that you've done, for Cable previously, is the emphasis on the fact that you are a sustenance hunter. I mean, you are not just going out there and shooting things because it's fun. Yeah. You eat everything you catch, with a few exceptions that you write about that are just completely inedible. But for the most part, I mean, if, even if it's a little bit gamey, you kill it, you're going to eat it.
1: Yeah, I I feed my family on wild game, so when we're home, we eat wild game. Tonight, for instance, I just thought out some striped bass that I caught the other day here in New York. So, and some porgies, so we'll have those tonight. I also have some buffalo meat that I shot in Mexico that I thought out for my boy's dinner tonight. So he's two and he's eating more game than than most adults that I know. That's important to me, And, and it's funny that like, hunting is so obvious when you look at it in a historical sense. Hunting is a food acquisition activity. That's why it exists. We would have never gotten involved in it as a species if it wasn't for food acquisition. I think that as we have gotten more into mechanized food systems and specialization where everyone's not responsible for every aspect of their life, you know, you can be someone who writes and you know that your your plumbing and garbage collection and home building and all those other needs are being taken care of by other specialists. We've kind of divorced ourselves from food acquisition. I still think that a lot of people feel the call of hunting or feel like some physical attraction or physical need to hunt, but they've managed to somehow divorce it from what it essentially is, which is food acquisition. So I find myself like doing a a preachy kind of thing all the time. On one hand, I'm preaching to to people who are uneasy with hunting or who are opposed to hunting, and when I'm talking to them, I'm always talking about the importance of food to hunters. When I'm preaching to hunters, like when I'm preaching to the choir, what I'm always saying to them is just a reflection of what I say to the anti-hunters. Is like I'm saying... Listen, man, we really have to pay attention to the food thing and be really careful and thorough about food usage because we're being watched by other people and we need to set a good example. So I'm arguing on one hand that we do and I'm arguing the other people to make sure to set the right example because a thing that's taken me a long time to realize, even though it's so obvious, is that hunters exist at the pleasure of non-hunters. Hunters will get killed in the legislature. I mean, like I said earlier, it's, it's legal to hunt in New Jersey where less than 1% of the people hunt. So you have ninety nine percent of a non hunting population is basically saying, go ahead, if you're going to abide by some general principles that we deem acceptable, you can continue to pursue your practice. So when some guys like like I admire a lot of his stuff and I'm a big like when I'm cruising the FM dial when I'm home in Michigan I'm always looking for the music of Ted Nugent. But one way I part from Ted Nugent people often ask me like how I feel about Ted Nugent who's such a strong advocate of hunting and, and gun ownership is one thing I don't like that he does, and I don't really understand, I'd love to ask him in person someday, is he pursues this kind of uh, like whack 'em and stack em mentality, or like it's us against them. And he has this active animosity and almost hatred toward people who don't feel the way he feels. And I've never understood how you think that's productive when you're in such a minority. I think the minority generally needs to not court the majority, but needs to be conscientious of, of, of the majority opinion especially in a civilization, in a a society like ours, where things can get shut down like that through referendums and other political means.
0: And this is something that you feel pretty keenly. I mean, there aren't a lot of opportunities for hunting in Brooklyn. So you do your hunting elsewhere in the country. But when you come home, you are a hunter surrounded by... (laughs) Yeah. Non-hunters. <laughs> I sometimes feel...
1: It's funny to bring that up because, like, I think I mentioned this in the book, too, where like if I come back from, a, like, a, a, an exhausting or kind of grueling or like visceral-type hunting trip somewhere and, and, and I come home for a short period of time before going out again and I'm, like, walking down the street in Brooklyn, I sometimes feel like as I'm passing people, I'm like, if you could only imagine where I've been in and in, in what I've done, you would be either, like, in, intrigued or repulsed. <laughs> but I do feel... All the time like that. I think that in some ways, you know, you're man, like in New York, you're trying to manage this enormous population. So you have really restrictive gun laws From, from my personal perspective as a hunter. It's like New York has like overly restrictive gun laws. And so to have like hunting firearms here, you're made to almost feel like some kind of like criminal underworld or like you need to go and beg acceptance from the police to get the proper permitting. And, and it feels kind of like quasi criminal that, that you need these things. There's these regulations of what you do with it. And you want to look at your rifle and be like, no, you don't understand. This is no different than like a, than a food processor or something. It's something I use to produce and prepare food, but you have to come to terms with the fact that other people look at it as a means of human violence. It's a weapon. So it is funny to be. Me here, you know, to be like a, a very avid hunter who spends so much time here and, and lives here. I'm here not quite half the time, but I'm here a lot, you know. And it's been educational for me to see hunting through the other side. And I found, too, that I've done a lot of, like, hunting recruitment in New York, and it's a prime place for that. Because I've been able to serve literally hundreds of people their first taste of wild game. And when people come in my home and eat wild game, I notice that they always leave with a favorable impression of hunting. If they come in and see, like, deer heads and bear skulls that I have on my bookshelves, that doesn't turn them on the hunting at all. It doesn't, it means nothing to them. When they sit down and eat a bear roast or a deer steak, they walk away being like, you know, I don't know if I want to go necessarily, but I respect what you do and I appreciate what you do. And I feel like that, if preservation of hunting is a battle, I feel that like that's like winning, or is a war, that's like winning a battle in my mind.
0: And, and that relationship goes on at a at a very intimate level. You write in here and, and you've talked about it and and I know from from knowing you and, and your wife that Katie is not a hunter and and that has come up at, at at a couple points as you were getting to know each other and and getting and uh coming together as a couple. The two of you grew up with very different relationships to hunting
1: she knew in, when she were she went to high school and she grew up we met here in New York. we grew up two hours apart. We're, we're, we're out at the high school like November 15th was only day of deer season. no guy would go to school that day. Katie, my wife grew up she knew a hunter and she liked him but her impression of like the other hunters was just weird like like hickish brutes and us meeting being there has been really interesting because she hasn't abandoned the idea that there's some level of brutality to hunting but she understands also that it's a that it's a way of life and it's a means of life where that's what we eat and, and I think she's come kind of to prefer game meat now. If you give her, like, if she's eating, like, some fatty beefsteak, it really turns her off on two levels. The the taste she recognizes as being somehow, like, an artificial fattiness. It doesn't feel right to eat it. The ethics of commercial meat production kind of bother her now that she understands wildlife. But the first time I took her out to get a deer, when she saw that deer go down, she cried. I honestly didn't know what it was going to mean for our marriage after that happened. I mean, she looked at me like, she looked at me like an animal, like a savage. Throughout the course of the day, I think she kind of came to an understanding of what she saw, and she accepted that, it is, that it's a part of life and it's a part of food, but not something she wants to be involved in. And so our current stance, like our current truce, is that she's okay with hunting, she loves to eat gamey, she has no desire to go out and hunt. And I always think, when I think of that perspective, I always think of something that, you know, the I never know how to pronounce her name, but Camille Paglia she had this point where she was arguing against this idea that people say, like, oh, homosexuality is unnatural. And she was like, of course, like, but everything about civilization, like, civilization is a mechanism by which we're able to do the unnatural. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. we've created this thing so that we're not bound by just our, our physical selves. Mm-hmm. You know? we're We're able to, like, explore things and do other things and pass on some things to other people. So it does seem like like a contradiction. She's like, yes, I'll eat gaming, but I have no desire to either kill it or see it killed. But in some way, I think it's just like her way of reconciling some aspect of our lives and some aspect of human history and and, and where it collides with civilization. I don't look at it as being evasive on her part. You know, it just seems, it's reasonable to me.
0: You mentioned at the beginning of our talk about how, you know, when you look back at your early introduction to hunting and then you think of your own small boy that, you know, that's an element of like, oh my God, it was crazy to give me a gun or a knife at this age. Have you thought ahead to the point at which you are going to start directly introducing your son to the hunting as opposed opposed to like showing him the products of the hunting?
1: I think in another year, I might, I kind of watch him all the time to see at what point he understands something being alive and something not being alive. I have a set of moose antlers hanging up at my house, and he will point at the antlers. It's just the antlers and a skull cap. But he'll point at them and ask, "Like, what is the moose going to eat?" I think he needs to connect a couple more things before I really introduce him to this. I don't want to wait so long that it'll be shocking to him. I've taken many people out on their first hunting trip. Over a dozen people I've taken on their first ever hunting trip made their first ever kill. Invariably, people will not. I shouldn't say invariably. Almost invariably, they cry like in a like a cathartic way or something when killing deer. Never regret it. Often go again, but the but it's so shocking to become that you're in your twenties or thirties, forties, and then see this happen. I don't want to wait so long that it's shocking to him, but I want to introduce him to hunting and to into the the taking of animal life for food at a point when he at least will be able to understand a little bit. I would think in another year or so, I'll I'll bring him with me. We talk a lot about fish, and we fish a lot together. And he understands catching a fish, and he understands eating a fish, but he doesn't really understand that you'd catch a fish and then eat it, and then it would cease to be... The fish, you wouldn't also let it go. You know, we look at fish as somehow not as like sentient as us. You know, like like fisher seem to be like this kind of middle ground between like animals and vegetables. You know, so I think that we're grappling with a lot of like life and death stuff with fish because he doesn't relate to him in the way that he relates to to other things he sees, like squirrel and deer. Uh, he sees a squirrel and deer, and he very much he ascribes them like human attributes. So I guess it's a long-winded way of saying I'm not really sure, but but I think that by the time he's Seven or eight, I'll bring them on more complicated haunts. you will probably start hunting when he's 10, maybe, with heavy supervision.
0: A lot of times when I'm talking to people about writing memoirs, the question of, like, well, what does your family think of this comes up. The The hunting that you're writing about with you and your brothers, I mean, this is something that has been going on all your lives. So it's not like you did these things when you were younger and then you've drifted apart. I mean, you guys have stayed together yeah, as brothers in no small part through hunting.
1: It's funny you mention that because I was having an argument with my wife not long ago about like where we spend our time and holidays and stuff and I was talking about like being with my brothers and she said, Yeah, but you're kinda of with your brothers like it's like a hunting thing. It's not like a family thing. I'm like, Yeah, but I don't separate those two things. I mean like if I'm if I just if I go on a trip with my brothers to go hunting, I'm not gonna spin it that I went hunting or went with my brothers. It's family and a pursuit. it's like its own separate enterprise. And They've had, as far as the memoir aspect of that goes, I, I think that it's been a long learning process for them to be, in, and often uncomfortable to realize that they're like scientists, both PhD ecologists who live very private lives, and then they have this writer brother who's always kind of exposing aspects of them in my work. And I bring him into my work all the time. And at, And at one point, with the television projects I do, one of my brothers was like, you know, I don't want to do that anymore. You know, I don't like it. And it, and it hurt me. Like, it it causes to have i was like you are so much in my life and you inform everything i think and i wouldn't be who i am if it weren't for you and the thought that you would somehow want to pull away from my work would devastate me and it would devastate my work like i can't do what i do without the input and the ideas that i get from you, you yeah know? i was
0: gonna say that like writing about it is one thing but bringing a television crew Oh, I'm with you for that intense family experience. I mean, it's certainly, as you say, it, it clearly changed the dynamics, at least yeah. on that hunt.
1: They love, I, I think that I'm kind of speaking for them. They like that I write a lot, and they respect writing. They don't respect television. I think that they, they never say it to me. They almost kind of say it to me, but I get, I'm sure that they're actually together fishing right now at our place up in Alaska. And I'm sure on some nights it comes up that they can't stand that I do television. I know they hate it. They love that I'm a writer, but they just don't understand TV because they don't, they don't watch it, you know. They're avid readers. And I think they think that one is an acceptable art. It's like a, it's like a calling. And I think one they think is crass. It's crass and shallow. I think especially like, if you look at what someone's putting out and on one hand you have, you know, you write several hundred pages of explaining something, like you write several hundred pages of a book explaining something that means a lot to them, like honey, you know. They would look at that and be like, yes, that's a way to handle this subject. Twenty-two minutes, a twenty-two minute TV show cannot do it justice. So therefore, you should dabble in it. So yeah, it's like it's it's friction. But more and more, I, I think that they don't hate it, but they accept that I exploit them and their ideas and, and things they've said and, and turn it into material. You know, if I had to pay them for the material, I'd owe them a lot of money.
0: What have you got going on next? Now that Meat
1: Eater is out, I'm gonna I'm doing two things. One, we're making a lot of shows, and I do magazine writing still actually late on a couple, uh, a story I'm doing for Outside, a story I'm doing for Field and Stream, two magazines where I do some stuff. And I'm beginning in the early stages of working on what is going to be sort of an introductory guidebook to hunting and butchering and cooking wild game. Meat Eater Adventures from the Life, I think, of very much kind of an ideas book, kind of an ethics book. The next thing I want to do is just a, a, a fun visually focused book about how can someone who wasn't grown up with in this way how can they go and experience some aspect of this lifestyle and at least coming through me there's a big demand for something like that that's the number one like of all the emails we get through our show and through my writing is people saying you know my grandpa hunted i've never been hunting i really want to feel that connection to the land but i have no idea how to begin want to remedy that situation for them and then and, and do a book about that. And also, I just want to find a place, like a repository for what I consider to be a lot of technical information that I've stored up over the years that I would just love to get that on paper.
0: Great. Well, we will keep an eye out for that. And you've been listening to Steve Ranella tell us about Meat Eater Adventures from the Life of an American Hunter, published by Spiegel and Grau. I'm Ron Hogan, and this has been Life Stories. I hope you'll join us again for another Life Stories podcast soon. Thanks.